Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. The labels say pure and natural, but good luck getting any real information about how bottled water is purified. It really is very much a buyer beware market. We're forced to trust that bottled water companies are doing the testing they need to do, that they're purifying the water, that they're giving us what we're paying for. We go to the source for some answers. Also, greenhouses in green neighborhoods. Plus why President Obama calls nuclear terrorism the threat above all others. We can now vividly imagine al-Qaeda getting a nuclear bomb, bringing it to an American city, destroying the heart of that city and changing our world. A leading defense expert on how to counter and defuse that threat and more this week on Living on Earth. So stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. New concerns are bubbling up about bottled water. We all know about the waste from all those plastic bottles. But two new reports and a recent congressional hearing focused on the labels on those bottles and what they do not tell us. The Government Accountability Office found that consumers get less information about the source and quality of bottled water than they do about plain old tap water. The nonprofit Environmental Working Group graded bottled waters on the information provided, and, well, let's just say most major name brands won't be making the dean's list. Jane Houlihan's with us to tell us about that report. She's Environmental Working Group's vice president for research. Ms. Houlihan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Got me a bottle of Pellegrino water here because my throat's a little dry. I'm just going to have a sip. Mm. Now, you know, it says right here on the label, it's natural and it was bottled at the source, and I paid a pretty penny for this this water. So I'm assuming, of course, that means this is this is this is pretty good for me, right? It may be, or or it may not be. Um, so often you can't tell exactly where the water comes from, or how it's treated, or even if it's treated, and you can't tell what contaminants it might contain. What we find is that Pellegrino in our scorecard receives a grade of F. A- F. A failing F. rate, but but it says right here on the label it's natural. Let's talk about marketing for a moment. We hear phrases like uh, essential, pure, crystal fresh. What does that mean? Right. Some waters are, are crisp. Other waters make claims about their healing properties. Some of them refer to legends. You know, many decades ago, Poland Springs claims that its water um, gained its reputation for curative powers in 1793 when it cured a man on his deathbed, and he lived another 52 years. You know, Evian water is a symbol of health and healing and general well-being. Lots and lots of claims on on health and purity um, that aren't matched by regulations that require that the data that might back those claims up actually be made public. Now, is there evidence that uh, what we don't know about bottled water might indeed hurt us? 
Well, there have certainly been some recalls over the years, but FDA doesn't prioritize the inspection of bottled water companies. So it really is very much a buyer beware market. We're forced to trust that bottled water companies are doing the testing they need to do, that they're purifying the water, that they're giving us what we're paying for. You know, you often won't find the data you need on the label to know exactly what you're getting. Now, your group did some testing in an earlier report, and you found some some contaminants in bottled water, right? We did. You know, some surveys have shown that about a quarter of all bottled water drinkers buy it because they think it's free of contaminants. We tested 10 major brands of bottled water and found 38 different pollutants in that water. Um, everything from you know radioactive minerals to fertilizer wastes to um, toxic byproducts of water disinfection. And I think that would surprise a lot of people. This water is not pure as the driven snow like some companies advertise. But the contaminants that you found, are they at levels that would hurt people? I mean, are you saying, for example, when one of these gets an F, that it might be dangerous to drink? This is a grade that's about transparency, not safety. So when a company gets an F, it's because they're not telling people very much about where their water comes from, how it's treated, or the pollutants that are in it. So what's your recommendation here? What would you like to see, let's say, Congress do about this? Well, Congress definitely needs to beef up the law when it comes to bottled water and require that bottled water companies, first of all, label their source and treatment methods right on the bottle. And there are brands that already do this. We point out a couple in our report, Ozarka Drinking Water, labels exactly what municipal water supply their water comes from and exactly how it's treated after they take that water from the municipal supply. Um, Penta is another brand that does the same. So these things that easily fit on the label and other companies could be doing the exact same thing. And we also think that bottled water companies should be required to publish their test results. They are testing. They're required to do that under federal law. So just publish those tests, make them available to to the public so that people know exactly what they're getting. What's your recommendation to uh, consumers in the meantime? Consumers in the meantime can use our bottled water guide to find brands that are providing more information on water source and treatment and testing. Um, and also, you know, look to filtered tap water as a superior alternative. It's, it's much less expensive. It's um, purer than tap water, and it's a great um, inexpensive first choice for, for the water that we drink. Thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. That's Jane Houlihan of the Environmental Working Group with the glass half-empty, if you will. Well, now from the glass half-full point of view, Tom Loria. He's vice president of communications at the International Bottled Water Association. Mr. Loria says many companies are working to supply information. Well, we believe that it's telegraphed differently on bottled water labels. If it says spring water, that's just not an accidental or fanciful term. That has real U.S. pharmacopoeia meaning. We are making our companies through 800 numbers available to the consumer, and we're trying to get on our website as much information about all their products as we can. This water quality information is important to some consumers, and it is available even as we speak. Now, we took Mr. Loria's advice and searched out the 800 number in tiny print on the bottle's label. An operator heard our questions about water testing and treatment and said they'd send us a report by mail in 10 days or so. 
Well, we won't make you wait for more information. You can read those reports on bottled water and the industry's response at our website, LOE.org. When you visit a website or look up something online, each click of the mouse makes a little more work for a place like this, a data center. Former Living on Earth staffer Chris Page, who now works with Yahoo, gives us a virtual tour of Yahoo's Sunnyvale data center in California. This is where the real work of the internet happens. And what you're basically hearing is all that cooling energy. You've got the fans running across the servers, which look like these humming boxes. They're each about the size of a pizza box. And they're in these racks. And the racks are in these aisles. And there are fans that suck the cold air from the air handling units through the front of the servers and then spit the hot air out the back. Data centers also emit greenhouse gases. And as Yahoo's director of climate and energy strategy, it's Chris Page's job to find ways to cut those emissions. Back at her office, where we can actually hear, Page explains how Yahoo's approach has evolved. Yahoo, basically in 2007, we saw a problem that we wanted to take action on immediately. And what we did is we bought offsets against our entire footprint, rendering us carbon neutral. Hmm. And so now you're thinking no more carbon offsets, right? That's right. The goal now is a 40% reduction in the carbon intensity of our data centers by 2014. Effectively, what that means is we'll be providing the same amount of services or better in 2014 that we are today, but for 40, with 40% less carbon. Of your carbon footprint, how much of it is just powering those big data centers, those servers? That's one of the first things that we discovered is the majority of it really is from data centers. Hmm. And my guess is my individual contribution to that is not that great, but it adds up. How, how many Yahoo users are there? We have over 500 million users worldwide. Half a billion. Half a billion users worldwide. To give you an example, when Michael Jackson passed away recently, we had 800,000 clicks on the front page story about that within a 10-minute time period. Wow. So that's a lot of people. But you don't always have that level of use, right? That's correct. But you have to plan for that level of use. Exactly. That's where one of the opportunities is in terms of efficiency. Historically, when you look at capacity in a server, you have to design a cathedral for Easter or Christmas. People aren't going to be using it that way all the time. It's Easter and Christmas, only you don't know what day of the year Easter or Christmas is going to fall on. Innovations like cloud computing and virtualization give us an opportunity to eliminate the extra space, to cram all the people, uh, all the Catholics and Protestants, into that church, uh, turn it into a 24-7 use, and really maximize that resource. Um, Maybe shut the lights off somewhere else when we don't need it. Do we know how big the Internet is in terms of its energy use, its CO2 output? In 2007... uh, the EPA noted that over the past five years, energy consumption from data centers in the United States had doubled and was 60 billion kilowatt hours for the country and was expecting within the next five years to go up to 100 billion kilowatt hours. Historically, with data centers, uh, people really haven't paid very close attention to electricity. So you wound up having sort of the equivalent of your mom's wood-paneled station wagon, very reliable, but not necessarily designed for efficient miles per gallon. 
what we're looking at in the next generation of data centers that Yahoo's trying to build is really something closer to the Tesla. Still very efficient, even more reliable, um, and looking for ways to reduce the waste throughout the system as much as possible. Mm. But the Tesla costs $100,000. Yeah, well, that's where the analogy kind of breaks down a little bit, because it's not actually that much more expensive. In some cases, what you're doing is actually saving money uh, by eliminating things like very expensive chillers uh, and relying instead on air cooling, uh, free air cooling, as we're going to do in the new design we have for our upstate New York facility. Now, this new one that you're building, uh, tell us more about that. What's Is that going to look significantly different or behave significantly differently from your other data centers? It will look a little bit like a chicken coop when it's built. Um, and it is oriented to take advantage of the microclimate in the area. Upstate New York can be a very chilly place. We're going to be relying 100% of the time on free cooling, which will drastically improve the efficiency of it. What does all this tell us about uh, how information technology overlaps with energy technology and our efforts to get cleaner energy? Well, I think you're going to see some tremendous uh, developments in the next couple of years. The impact that all this technology will have in other areas, making transportation smarter, making buildings smarter so they're cooling themselves in a much more efficient way. All those things together, smart logistics, smart buildings, and the smart grid uh, will decrease carbon emissions by 7.8 gigatons. Mm -hmm. So the contribution of the ICT industry will be 1.3 gigatons. The reduction will be 7.8 gigatons. I think that's one of the really powerful things about the Internet in general and companies like Yahoo is providing technology that can make the world run more efficiently, more smoothly, and with better information. Chris Page is Director of Climate and Energy Strategy at Yahoo, Inc. Thanks very much for your time. You bet. Coming up, the top-rated green home in America, and at the top of its winning ways is plain, old-fashioned insulation. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. When the leaders of the G8 and major economies got together in Italy, they struck an agreement to prevent average global temperatures from rising more than two degrees Celsius. That's about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit. And for the first time, the G8 agreed to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 80 percent by 2050. But the G8 couldn't agree among themselves on how to reach these goals, nor how to help developing countries decarbonize their growing economies. President Obama pledged to keep climate negotiations moving forward between now and the key meeting in December in Copenhagen. Developed countries, like my own, have a historic responsibility to take the lead. We have the much larger carbon footprint per capita. And I know that in the past, the United States has sometimes fallen short of meeting our responsibilities. So let me be clear, those days are over. Climate diplomacy expert Jennifer Morgan is with the environmental think tank E3G and joins us on the line now from Berlin. Tell me, Ms. Morgan, what do developed countries have to do to close the gap with developing ones such as China? Well, first of all, I think that developing countries need to see that this is possible, that we can have economic growth and decarbonize our economies at the same time. And that means they need to see strong laws in place in developed countries like the United States, Japan, and Europe. And those aren't all out there yet. So they need to see a credible down payment for the short term for 2020 from developed countries. And they need to see 
really pragmatic but very fundamental offers on financial support and on technology transfer. Last week, Prime Minister Brown from the United Kingdom put a proposal on the table that would, through a range of public and private financing, gather $100 billion to support developing countries to adapt to climate change. Those types of proposals we need to see many more of. $100 billion from the world. Yep, $100 billion from the world. So this was the Obama administration's first appearance uh, on the World Summit stage on climate change. How did America do? Well, I think you see a fundamental change from the previous eight years uh, from these G8s on climate change. You see the adoption of a goal that uh, the world, including the United States, has now said, you know, if you go above three and a half degree increase in temperature, it's too much. The impacts are too much. And that, I think, is a real fundamental shift. And President Obama was there. He adopted that. And from that perspective, I think uh, you see just a massive difference in the way that the G8 has approached this problem. Still, at this point, it looks like the U.S. Congress is willing to do less than what the European Union says it would like to have, for example. So how can President Obama walk that line and still get a credible deal in Copenhagen? I think this is a very challenging issue for President Obama. My hope is that between now and Copenhagen, President Obama can work with the American public to show how it's in American national interest to move forward on an ambitious deal in Copenhagen. Now, this was supposed to be President Obama's chance to talk with the Chinese President Hu, but of course, uh, Mr. Hu has some civil unrest back home. He had to go home uh, before he really could talk about this at the, at the climate meeting. Yes, um, very unfortunate, I think, and I, I think that took certainly some of the dynamic out of the meeting. But there is a very strong dialogue happening between the U.S. and China right now on climate change and energy, and I think they've got to find another time to talk soon. Jennifer Morgan, it seems pretty clear what everybody wants in terms of the climate. Nobody wants to go over 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit. The developing countries want the tools to decarbonize. The developed world wants to have a level playing field. What's the problem with getting to an agreement? I think fundamentally now it's a problem of of leadership and courage. You have a, a game of chicken going on and people not wanting to blink first. And I think people need to understand that this is not a zero-sum game, that we need leaders to step forward and to take some risks and to have some courage and to lead not to wait for others to move first before they move, because the time is much too short for those types of chicken games. Jennifer Morgan is the Global Climate Change Director of the environmental think tank E3G. Ms. Morgan, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. U.S. Green Building Council administers a program to rate the environmental impact of buildings. It's known as Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, or LEED for short. The top LEED rating is Platinum. And in Berkeley, California, David Gottfried says his craftsman-styled bungalow has garnered more points over Platinum than any other house in the United States. Lonnie Shavelson took a look. David Gottfried says he lives in the greenest house in America. Okay, All you greenies living off the grid in your straw bale houses, don't get your I'm the greenest gal on the block hackles up. Gottfried admits your house probably does out-eco his. You know, there are straw bale homes, there are earth ship homes, and I think that in some ways they, they would beat me on ecological impact. 
But competing in an eco-battle with straw-bale houses isn't Gottfried's point. A lean, middle-aged man in a baggy sweater, he looks more like an Ivy League English lit professor than an enviro-radical. He says his goal is to show that you can be hyper-green living in any house. In his case, an old renovated craftsman home in a mixed residential commercial zone on the border of Berkeley and Oakland. The way to really green the homes in the world is to green what we have, the existing stock. You want to have something that the market understands. So we wanted to showcase how to make an existing home not just deep green, but gorgeous. And that's where some might say David Gottfried went over the environmental cliff. This is a man who read the novel Siddhartha, about the search for that spiritual perfection called nirvana, 18 times. So when Gottfried got down to eco-perfecting that old craftsman house... We did solar electric and solar hot water and rainwater capture and graywater capture and all the windows and all the utilities and insulation. We got salvaged wood from the old Sacramento Main Bridge. We have radiant water and it supplies the hot water as well as our heating. We put 2.7 kilowatts of solar on the house, about 16 panels. And the rainfall on his roof runs into tanks called rain hogs, which feed into one toilet in his house so it flushes with rainwater. And I'm trying to get my girls to only pee in that toilet. Anybody else out there, like me, living in a decidedly on-the-grid energy hog of an old comfy house, who listens to Gottfried's greenhouse mantra and says, oof, I can't do all that stuff. Even Gottfried admits. I do think in hindsight that we went overboard on the house, maybe more than a little. My green passion poured out in a flood. Which did get Gottfried the highest green score of any house certified in the U.S. But for the rest of us, keeping up with the Gottfried seems impossible. So to learn from his home what we can reasonably do with our own, I asked architect Henry Siegel to come with me on a tour of Gottfried's house. He's certified in environmental architecture by the U.S. Green Building Council. Hi, I'm Henry. Henry Siegel. He's an architect. Siegel barely glances at the Rainhog solar panels, gray water irrigation system, tens of thousands of dollars of Gottfried's fancy eco-innovations. Then he asks Gottfried about the simplest and cheapest changes he's made. I'm really curious to know more about what you did in terms of air sealing and insulation and all those envelope improvements that are really cheap but really pay off fast because that's the kind of thing that's really transferable really quickly that other people, anybody can do. So these two green glitterati, touring the prize-winning eco-home, wrap themselves in conversation about what they call energy savings low-hanging fruit. Window caulking, sealing air leaks around doors, insulation. They barely even look at the solar panels. Gottfried waxes nostalgic over the day he had some guys over to blow air into his house and find where it leaks. They put an air blower on a door so they can track the air loss. And then they run around with caulk and weather stripping and foam and tighten it up. And in that day, we tightened it up by 50%. And it was $600. It it tightened it up more than brand new windows, which could be $30,000. So if we just ran around the U.S. doing that... That would save enormous amounts of energy... Siegel agrees that eco-simplicity is the real eco-sexy. It only costs four or $500 to get the guys to come in with infrared cameras and do all the testing to tell you exactly where your worst leaks are and to fix them. And that's the really fast payback. 
and also create the green collar jobs because yeah, exactly. it's right. it's low tech. Low tech. You'd think the two connoisseurs of green would get together and talk up a solar storm of techno ecobabble. Surprisingly, their main message is, don't sweat the big stuff. Take care of the basics. I tell them I'm thinking of putting solar on my old leaky home. Their faces don't exactly light up with the idea. So many folks just want to slap solar on their inefficient home. Right. And that's really, as we know, the last thing even though it's the coolest thing, perhaps. And, says Gottfried, the most ecologically crucial part of his house isn't in or on the building. It's where it's located. We're flat, walkable, six homes from a grocery store and half a mile from the BART. But we were in the Berkeley Hills, and I didn't really want to green that home because it wasn't walkable. What's interesting here, since we've moved, is how little I drive. Gottfried says that if you start at the basics and then climb up to green nirvana on a ladder of ecological gadgetry, as he did, each step higher costs more and yields less. And, says architect Siegel, all that green stuff loaded on a house can look pretty funky. What he really liked about Gottfried's eco-elegant but architecturally straightforward home was... This looks like a craftsman house. It doesn't look like it's trying to be something other than what it is. The sign of maturity is that people realize that green is not a style, you know, that it really can fit with any style of architecture and improve it and make it more comfortable and and more efficient. But if the message of these green guys is go for the basics and keep it simple, well, maybe Gottfried hasn't quite yet learned that lesson. I'll have to go further. Today I met with a fuel cell company that has personal home fuel cells. So while Gottfried continues his ascent to an environmental heaven... The rest of us might do almost as well with our feet still firmly on Earth. For Living on Earth, I'm Lonnie Shavelson in Berkeley, California. Well, as homeowner David Gottfried observed, location also plays a role in the environmental footprint of housing. So the Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design program from the U.S. Green Building Council now also has a program for whole neighborhoods. In 2007, some 240 development projects across the country joined a pilot program, and since then, 29 of those projects have gotten LEED certification. Sophie Lambert is Director of LEED for Neighborhood Development, and she joins me now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. Hi. What are the goals of designing neighborhoods with green building principles? Well, in terms of lead for neighborhood development, we're really looking at three different things at the same time. We're looking at the location of the project. We're looking at the form of the project. So is it walkable? Is it compact? Is it connected to the neighborhoods around it? And then finally, looking at the performance of the buildings and then beyond the actual building parcels, looking at the streets and the sidewalks and stormwater um, runoff, etc. So what are the basic principles behind this work? So the basic principles are smart growth, and so we're really looking at how a project's location could potentially reduce vehicle miles traveled, while at the same time directing growth into existing areas. We have the potential to save um, prime farmland, to save natural habitat, at the same time 
the urban form of the project is giving people the chance to safely walk or bike within a community and potentially be near shops and parks and schools and that type of thing. And then finally, everybody deserves to live in a green and sustainable environment. And so if if all of the buildings have reduced energy use and reduced water use, then we really are creating a holistically green neighborhood. So it would seem that that old real estate mantra, location, location, and location, means a lot in your rating system. Definitely. There is emphasis on location, but we really think that the rating system is um, has the potential to transform the, the market because it looks at location, design, and green building performance. So maybe the new mantra is location, design, and green building. <laughs> Tell me about some successful projects that have gotten lead certification for neighborhood development now. Well, two that are certified um, in different parts of the country that I think have some interesting takeaways, and both actually are public-private partnerships. So a local government played a role as um, a co-developer in both of these projects. Um, One is called Twinbrook Station, and it's actually here in the Washington, D.C. area. It's um, the redevelopment of a former commuter parking lot for the the Washington Metro transit system here. And it's a 26-acre project. It's going to have offices. It's going to have 1,600 units of residential and also quite a lot of retail. And 80% of the buildings will be green buildings. The second project I wanted to describe briefly was the Gulch. It's actually in Nashville, Tennessee. So our first certified project in the southeast part of the country, it was a historic rail yard that was abandoned in the 1990s, and it's adjacent to downtown Nashville. And it's 60 acres, so they're really looking at the redevelopment of a large number of historic buildings into residences, offices, retail, and then also looking forward to the future. I mean, this is a multi-phase project, so there'll be quite a large um, number of buildings, especially residential buildings, that are still going to be built in the coming years, but they will be building them to the standard that they're following in lead for neighborhood development. In what ways may zoning laws conflict with the goals of lead certification? Can you give me some examples? Well, many of the types of projects that we're certifying uh, with Lead for Neighborhood Development um, might be considered illegal with many zoning codes. So what I mean by that is that Some of the zoning codes within the country, uh, actually most zoning codes within the U.S. were created in the 50s or 60s and really focus on the use of buildings and um, have very, very high numbers of parking spaces that are required for those projects. So with more and more development being in urban areas and more and more people thinking about taking transit or walking or biking, people aren't needing to drive quite as much. And so, you know, Projects aren't needing quite as much parking. They, maybe they can put the parking behind the building instead of in front of it, like much suburban development is built. So we're really looking at hopefully encouraging local governments to reevaluate their zoning codes and make them more flexible and to make them more about um, how the building sits up against the street and um, that relationship between the building and the public realm, that space which is the sidewalk, the road, the bike lanes, and that building-to-building space. So tell me, how do economics and, and race fit into the redevelopment of neighborhoods and greening them? 
We really think that everybody deserves the right to live in a green neighborhood. And so we actually have quite a few credits that look at um, social equity issues. We have a credit that encourages affordable rental and for sale housing. And not just, you know, isolated in one part of a project. We actually, through the rating system, are trying to encourage affordable housing to be spread throughout a project and to have a variety of different housing sizes and types available for affordable housing. So at the end of the day, what are the benefits of having neighborhood developments getting LEED certified? Well, we really see the benefits in terms of trying to influence um, developers from the very um, beginning of their process. So if we can try to encourage developers to pick sites that would be eligible for LEED ND and really direct growth into existing areas, I think we'd be having a a very powerful impact. And then obviously we're wanting them to make the choices and the commitment to have green building and green infrastructure from that very early on point. So we're really hoping that local governments will say, you know, wow, we can really see what the environmental and health benefits will be if this lead for neighborhood development eligible project, if we actually approve it. Sophie Lambert, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Sophie Lambert is the director of Lead for Neighborhood Development. She comes to us courtesy of our partnership with the U.S. EPA Smart Growth Program and the National Building Museum. And to learn more about Smart Growth and the speaker series, go to our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, there's a new push to cut Cold War arsenals, but that does not mean the threat of nuclear weapons is receding. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. President Obama returned from his trip to Moscow with an agreement in principle for the U.S. and Russia to reduce nuclear arsenals by up to a third. It's one of many steps experts say must be taken to deter proliferation and keep nuclear weapons out of the hands of terrorists. The Mideast and Asia are rife with nuclear tension. Israel is presumed to have the bomb. And just last month, a senior al-Qaeda leader said his group aims to seize Pakistan's nuclear arsenal and use it against Americans. The threat was underscored by the recent suicide bombing of a bus carrying workers from a Pakistani nuclear lab. Defense expert Graham Allison says the threat of nuclear terrorism and the resulting human and ecological devastation is greater now than ever. Graham Allison was Assistant Secretary of Defense during the Clinton administration and is now a professor at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Professor Allison, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much for having me. And you've recently been serving the federal government with the Weapons on Mass Destruction uh, Commission. Tell me about that work. Well, Congress established uh, a year ago a commission on preventing weapons of mass destruction, proliferation, and terrorism. So it's a, a mouthful. Uh, as a successor to the 9-11 commission, and we issued our report in December and carefully, uh, after a lot of debate and deliberation, entitled it World at Risk. And the conclusion was that on the current trajectory, terrorists will successfully conduct a nuclear or biological terrorist attack somewhere in the world in the next five years. That's more likely than not. 
we're losing ground. We're less safe today than we were five years ago, and we'll be less safe five years from now. So it's a call for bending the trend lines that are otherwise leading us to a pretty catastrophic consequence. Let's talk about the fundamentals of the threat here. What are the scenarios that you look at in terms of a nuclear terrorist uh, attack? In the book that I published in 2004 called Nuclear Terrorism, The Ultimate Preventable Catastrophe, in the introduction, I tell the story of Dragonfire. Dragonfire? Dragonfire. Dragonfire is the name of a source, an intelligence source, who reported just one month to the day after 9-11 that al-Qaeda had got a small nuclear bomb out of the former Soviet arsenal, had brought that bomb to New York City, and might be about to explode it. Sounds like a movie. It does sound like a movie. When George Tenet, who was then the director of CIA, went to give the president's daily intelligence briefing, he explained this to President Bush, and there was a moment to catch breath, and then an interrogatory that went something like the following. Did the former Soviet arsenal include weapons of the description of the bomb that Dragonfire had provided? Answer, yes. Were all those uh, weapons adequately accounted for? Answer, no. Could al-Qaeda have got one of those weapons and brought it to New York City and be about to explode it, and we not otherwise know anything about it? Answer, yes. So the conclusion from this was there was no basis for dismissing Dragonfire's report. And on this basis, the president ordered nuclear experts to go to New York to look for signs of radiation. And for months after this event, Cheney was missing from Washington because the thought was maybe there'd be a bomb in Washington, and if it exploded in Washington, would destroy the government we have. We would still like to have political authority. So there's an alternative site that was created during the Cold War where the Cheney and actually a couple of thousand people from agencies of the U.S. government went and stayed for some months. Now, it turned out to be a false alarm, but the important takeaway from this is that there was no basis in science, no basis in technology, no basis in logic for dismissing an account that al-Qaeda, the guys that had just killed 3,000 people, now had a weapon that would kill 300,000 people. So how easy is it, if someone wanted to, to get a hold of, of nuclear weapons? Well, fortunately, you can't just order up a nuclear weapon from the Internet. Thank goodness there's not any for sale on eBay. The happy good news is that it's much more complicated than first blush. Without fissile material, you can't make a mushroom cloud. Fissile material comes in only two brands, highly enriched uranium and plutonium. Neither of these occur in nature. So you can't go dig them up or just go find them. Making highly enriched uranium or plutonium is a huge industrial undertaking. Took the U.S. the Manhattan Project. I mean, that was the the big breakthrough to make the material. So the good news is no fissile material, no nuclear terrorism. The bad news is that there's a lot of nuclear weapons and a lot of material, a lot of it not adequately secured. Or accounted for or even accounted for, because in the former Soviet Union, you had this vast uh, uh, undertaking during the Cold War in which it's not even clear they knew how much material or how many weapons they ultimately created. And as I understand, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the stands had a lot of these weapons, Uzbekistan, uh, Ukraine, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, absolutely. No, I was Assistant Secretary of Defense in 1993, so the beginning of the Clinton administration. 
And one of the first things I did was with a person from the State Department, we traveled around the places where these nuclear weapons uh, were or had been. Now, at the time that the Soviet Union disappeared, so that's December 1991, there were about 14,000 nuclear weapons, best estimate, left outside of Russia. There were 2,620 weapons in Ukraine, about 1,000 weapons in Belarus. And we believe all those nuclear weapons were taken out of those 14 states and back to Russia. That's what we believe in the sense that we haven't found one anywhere else. But if you said, is it possible that some went missing? The answer is it certainly is. And is it possible that some material from which terrorists could make a bomb went missing? Certainly is. There was a very good report that George Tennant says something about in his uh, memoir of people negotiating to buy four bombs. These were al-Qaeda folks in Saudi Arabia. Again, people tried to trace down this story and never got to the bottom of it. There have been rumors that Iran may have bought one or two or several such weapons. So we haven't found one of these weapons so far. And I give thanks for that every day. But we don't know what we don't know. So if someone got a hold of these materials, um, how easy, how difficult would it be to, say, bring them into the United States? Well, that's a, uh, unfortunately, an easy question to answer because one needs to ask how many illegal things of approximately that size come into the U.S. every day. Now, every city knows that drugs come to the U.S. How do they get here? They come in cargo containers. They come in ships. They come across the Mexican border. They come across the Canadian border. They may come in a sailboat. I mean, we're here in Boston. Uh, how hard is it to get into a sailboat and sail to Canada and, and to sail back? And if you put your uh, a sailboat in Marblehead, do you cross some line in the ocean that says you're entering American water? No, of course you don't. And when you arrive at the dock in Marblehead, does somebody inspect your boat? No, of course they don't. So I would say, unfortunately, the ability of terrorists to bring a weapon to target, we just would say follow the drugs. And one needs about, what, 10 pounds of plutonium? Well, 10 pounds of plutonium would be sufficient for making a bomb. The easier form of a bomb would be uh, highly enriched uranium. And there, ideally, you would have about 100 pounds of highly enriched uranium, but it's very dense stuff. So this would be smaller than a, than a football. Of course, when one looks into the darkness... It's, it's, it's easy to be frightened by all kinds of things. One of the scenarios that came up as we were preparing for this discussion with you is, is, what if one of these things went off not in a great American city, but in a relatively small one, followed by a note that says, there's another one waiting to go off if you don't do X, Y, or Z? I mean, is this a Grey B movie or what? It, it is. It is. But uh, unfortunately, the 9-11 attack looked like, for many people, an unbelievable movie that they simply couldn't couldn't imagine. We have to remember that the U.S., who's the only country actually ever used nuclear weapons against another state, dropped first a bomb on Hiroshima. A small and, city. A small it? city. And, and, uh, and secondly, uh, a few days later, on uh, Nagasaki. Another uh, small city. Another small city. And at that point, uh, the emperor of Japan said, uh, uncle, I give up. So if one bomb exploded just in one city, a small city, and if there were threats that there were weapons in other cities, 
well, the question now the president would be wrestling with and his advisors is how likely is it that these guys have another bomb? And since a president couldn't be seen to be yielding to such blackmail, I suspect you would play it out for the second round. But now, I mean, if you're playing your movie, so now two bombs of a second city's gone up and there's a threat of a third city. So this is a nightmare. Uh, this is chaos. This is a breakdown of our yeah, and I, of our society. I, and I would think you could you could easily imagine uh, people in cities self evacuating. I mean, go back to the Dragonfire story that I mentioned to begin with. President Bush decided not to inform the city of New York, including Mayor Giuliani. So you remember here, this is a month after 9-11. Giuliani's been the man on the scene, the mayor. So they didn't inform him about the Dragonfire report that there was a nuclear bomb in the city. And why didn't they inform him? Because if you inform the mayor, he's going to inform the police commissioner. And the police commissioner is going to inform the assistant police commissioner. And pretty soon there's going to be a story out that President Bush believes there might be a nuclear bomb in New York City. A month after 9-11, you would have had people fleeing the city uh, massively. They thought this would be a panic. Now, one thing we haven't talked about here is a state using a nuclear bomb. Now, some folks say that, well, actually, nuclear bombs are pretty useless for states. Why do they say that? In general, if a state were to use a nuclear weapon, particularly to deliver a weapon by a missile against another state, let's take North Korea the attack would leave an unambiguous return address. And North Korea would know that the U.S. would know that this missile came from this particular place in North Korea, and the U.S. would respond to this with an overwhelming retaliatory response. So the reason why a state would not rationally attack a state that has nuclear weapons, like the U.S., with a nuclear weapon is that it would be suicidal. Terrorists who deliver a bomb are not going to deliver it by a missile. They're going to have delivered it by bringing it in the hull of a ship that comes into a harbor. So when the bomb explodes, we're not going to be able to identify this unambiguous return address. This is a huge advantage for a terrorist relative to a state. Secondly, some terrorists appear to want to be suicidal. So when you've got somebody who is prepared to die in the course of conducting their attack, the threat to kill them doesn't have quite the, uh, quite the same deterrent effect. So if it's difficult, if almost impossible for a state to use a nuclear weapon, why all the brouhaha about Iran getting nuclear weapons? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, if Iran succeeds with its current project, which will uh, give it a nuclear bomb sometime in the 2012-13 period, perhaps. Is that likely to be the end of the story in the region? Or will not Saudi Arabia, uh, which thinks of itself as the uh, leader of the uh, of the Sunni Muslim uh, community, demand to, to be equivalent? Will not Egypt, which thinks of itself as the political leader of the uh, of the area. So most people, and including myself, believe that if Iran becomes a nuclear weapon state, one will see a knock-on effect, uh, in effect a cascade of proliferation in the region. Well, the region is already extremely volatile. And in a situation in which other states are pursuing or about to get nuclear weapons, in which Israel probably would attack somebody along the way, one would expect that this would be a very... Uh, destabilizing scenario in the same way that if North Korea becomes a recognized nuclear weapon state, most people, including myself, believe that this will end up having 
a corrosive effect on uh, Japan and maybe South Korea. And as a consequence, if we look at these two urgent cases today, both of which are are losing hands, I mean, to tell the truth. I mean, the North Korean hand, North Korea has 10 bombs worth of plutonium and has conducted a second test. And we can say you simply can't do that, but they did it. So in both of these cases, if they should become nuclear weapon states, I think the whole non-proliferation regime is likely to uh, unravel. And then we will be in a world of multiple nuclear weapon states in which they're leapfrogging each other, in which I would think it's likely that nuclear weapons will be used in one or more cases and that some weapons will come loose. And so there'll be even more opportunities for people like terrorists to destroy our cities. So how did your group come to the conclusion that there's a better than 50-50 chance that we'll see uh, the detonation of a, of a nuclear device uh, someplace in the world by a non-state organization? Well, n- nuclear or biological. So we nuclear or biological. Okay. Uh, I mean, we worked our way through this, and we certainly uh, took testimony from all the experts across the U.S. government, from experts in other governments, including the British government, the Pakistani government. Unfortunately, the physical facts are such as they are: that there's people with motive, there's potential means, and there are huge opportunities. And you put all that together, and it seems more remarkable that something terrible hasn't happened than that something terrible would happen. So as a former assistant secretary of defense, as a person with all the security clearances in this area, you're sitting here telling me, um, really, it would have been more likely that this would have already happened than not. In, In my view, just because we can now vividly imagine... Al-Qaeda, getting a nuclear bomb, bringing it to an American city, destroying the heart of that city, and changing our world. You look at the means available, uh, you look at the opportunity, and I give thanks that it hasn't happened. But this is a preventable catastrophe. How? There's a feasible, affordable agenda of actions that if we took would reduce the likelihood of this to nearly zero. And there are long, complex lists, but the core of it is that on the supply side, there's this happy syllogism from physics. No fissile material, no mushroom cloud, no nuclear terrorism. So fortunately, they can't make the fissile material. What we have to do is make sure that all nuclear weapons everywhere and all nuclear material is locked up as good as gold. How much gold has U.S. lost from Fort Knox? Zero. So do human beings know how to lock up things that we really care about? Yes, of course we do. Well, is there some reason why nuclear weapons and materials should be less secure than gold? I mean, what is gold? So President Obama, in his speech in April at Prague, stated a very ambitious agenda with respect to this nuclear terrorism topic, in which one of them was that all nuclear weapons and all material everywhere in the world was going to be secured to a gold standard in four years. So my takeaway from this and the most important bottom line is not fatalism about this or not even pessimism, but to say, my goodness, we can get our mind around what a world would be like if this, God forbid, happened. If there are things we can do that reduce the likelihood of that to nearly zero, what in the world are we doing? What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Exactly. Graham Allison is author of Nuclear Terrorism, The Ultimate Preventable Catastrophe. He's a political scientist at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. 
Professor Allison, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreeskandaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Susan. Our interns are Annie Glosser and Lisa Song. This show was engineered by Dana Chisholm. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.